Alrighty, awesome. So, back to Baudrillard. Uh, the Agony of Power. So we're jumping a few books here, but that's just for the sake of time. I'm, uh, you know, doctoral life is hard, so this is uh, what I'll get to today. So The Agony of Power, this is uh, a later text, obviously. Yeah, so published, uh, well, these are texts or two essays um, from his manuscripts that were not published when he was alive, I don't believe. So it only came out in Oh, in 10, they were translated, but I think that they were first kind of compiled in 07, so he died in 07, so I don't know if, uh, yeah, anyway, so let's just jump into it. Uh, it, it, It's an important text to help kind of uh, think Baudrillard's work in perhaps different terms than those, or than might be understood normally. Wow, that was poorly said. Um, He presents some ideas here that might seem antithetical to some of his earlier claims. So when he's thinking of power here, uh, we might reminisce his Forget Foucault, for those unfamiliar, where he has a line that goes something like this, uh, perhaps Foucault wrote so well of power because it has ceased to exist. So it would seem odd then that Baudrillard would be writing a book dedicated to power. It It seems, at least to me, a little antithetical, but we'll get into how it actually fits into uh, his his framework. Oh, sorry, and I'm recalling, okay, 2005, this came out, uh, because it says right here in the introduction that I was going to skip, but, uh, so, Baudrillard had read these, um, these texts in Rio de Janeiro, Montreal, New York, Quito, and just a few other places, uh, where he w- he presented them alongside, some of them alongside Silvel Lothringer, someone whose name I can never pronounce, who wrote the introduction to this. Uh, but I'm going to just kind of skip that because, uh, you know, for the sake of time. But it's very good. It's very helpful. But then moving into the first chapter called From Domination to Hegemony, Baudrillard wants to make a crucial distinction between domination and hegemony. And this the distinction he makes is not new. So we can trace this back to uh, Gramsci at least, but the introduction of hegemony into uh, public knowledge, or at least to theoretical speculation, goes much further back than even Gramsci. So in many ways, what Baudrillard is saying right off the bat is a reiteration of that. So he says that one could say that hegemony is the ultimate stage of domination and its terminal phase. So domination characterized by this master-slave relation, which is still a dual relation with potential alienation, a relationship of force and conflicts. So hegemony takes up or begins here in the disappearance of the dual, personal, agonistic domination for the sake of integral reality, the reality of networks of the virtual and total exchange where there are no longer dominators or dominated. Okay, there's a lot there to unpack and some key terms that I'm going to Uh, kind of present out here. So this idea of a dual configuration is really important to Baudrillard. There was a, there's an interview, and I can't remember where it is exactly. It might be in the conspiracy of art, uh, but I can't exactly remember. But the interviewer asks him, or the interviewer asks, why is it that you rely so heavily on 
the interplay between two uh, two poles, essentially just uh, asking Baudrillard why he's so fancied by uh, binaries. And these binaries go throughout all of his work, you know, how the masculine opposes the feminine. It's just one example. Uh, the obscene opposes the, I don't know, seduction, uh, and so on and so forth. My cats are running around. Um, so to which Baudrillard says that while it might seem as though he's kind of re-injecting a rather normative and um, reductive mode to understand the world in the form of binaries, he says that without binaries, we risk entering a kind of um, totalizing or universal space, which is indicative of the logic of like globalization or, you know, Americanization of the globe that risks uh, removing all possible negation. So this will come out in very bad ways for him. For instance, in just simply eradicating the other, assimilating the other, or anything like that, to arrive at a kind of perfect point, perfect in air quotes. Or, uh, to put it in another way, we can think about his passage out of fatal strategies when he says that he fears not terrorism as much as he fears a state capable of eradicating terrorism. So he says, he, he posits that in opposition to this kind of perfectibility of the world, we have to maintain these antagonistic forces. Now for him, I think, and I'm just putting words in his head or mouth, um, that it wouldn't simply end at the thought of a binary. Like this could go into a trinary or anything else. But as long as there are ant antagonistic forces that wrestle with one another in a kind of dialectical way, uh, unless there are those forces that exist, then we risk entering a, a, a stage of what he calls here integral reality. So that's the age of networks, the age of uh, total pos positivity that allows little wiggle room for movement or mobility. So this brings us to another point of the binary that he is fancied with, that when there are two forces that oppose one another, they are not set in their identities. Baudrillard says in that same interview that it's very necessary for these two poles to constantly be uh, kind, of, kind of duking it out so that they could constantly be developing and changing. So in the kind of constant trying to one-up the other or to remain properly within his kind of um, theoretical lexicon, uh, it, would have to, it would have a kind of relationship to the Mausian idea of the gift where you give a gift and there's the responsibility to return said gift in a, 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 an equal but most likely greater um, return. So there's a constant give and take that always propels the two sides of the binary to develop and change. So domination characterizes this, where there he also has this kind of enigmatic point where he says that there is also the possibility, in what I just read here, of alienation. So this is an idea that comes out in the ecstasy of communication when he says that with the ecstasy of communication or what we might understand as a kind of point of terminal reality or integral <laughs> integral reality, sorry, uh, we are no longer alienated. Rather, we are omnipresent. You know, we are not at, at all allowed to be, you know, alone. You have to be made present all the time and presentable and all the other kind of things that come with that. 
So domination for Baudrillard allows these antagonisms to work themselves out and to wrest people, that is pull them from their um, kind of essentialized domains and to project them into, into new possibilities, not in a Deleuzian kind of way, but in just the kind of what I will perhaps reluctantly call a natural movement of people or ideas or, or anything. But it, what has to be made clear is that this isn't something that anyone can tell themselves to do. This is only this only occurs by being placed in contact or in proximity with another force that it will do it for you in a sense, or that will help rest you or pull you from your respective position. So hegemony is the end of that, according to Baudrillard, in a kind of development of this integral reality system. So etymologically, he tells us that hegemony comes from hegemon, which means the one who commands, orders, leads, and governs, and not the one who dominates and exploits. This brings us back to the literal meaning of the word cybernetic, contrary to domination. A hegemony of world power is no longer a dual personal or real form of domination, but the domination of networks of calculation and integral exchange. In integral, yeah, integral exchange, sorry. And then what follows the development of hegemony for Baudrillard are the advent of simulacra and simulation. Okay, so there is something to clarify here. When Baudrillard is speaking about simulation or the simulacrum, it's not necessarily negatively. Sometimes he's speaking about it positively because he feels the simulacrum or the idea of simulation, a kind of uh, terminal phase of representation, has always already been with us. As early as, you know, cave paintings going on walls with, you know, troglodytes or um, people adopting any form of language, they have, in a sense, adopted simulation, which isn't necessarily bad. Where it gets bad is when simulation kind of solidifies and grounds what those people can do or be or anything like that. So one example might be a computer uh, where on the surface, the computer gives us the semblance of allowing, you know, infinite possibility. But underneath, in the form of code that rely on, you know, binary sets of numbers uh, that correspond to one understanding of numbers or how most of the coding language is done in English, these represent oppressive forms of simulation because they ground and solidify what it means to engage in that field, which has far-reaching consequences because computers, you know, are everywhere, or if not everywhere, will uh, one day be. Uh, it's just one example. Perhaps it's not the best, but I think it gets the point across. So rather problematically, Baudrillard says that this comes about with the emancipation of the slave. Now, if we end it there, obviously that's bad. Like, we shouldn't ever uh, condone slavery. But he follows it by saying that what is replaced by the emancipation of the slave is the internalization of the master's narrative or the master's authority in the slave's head. So we get, this is a very, you know, it's Foucauldian in a sense. Uh, we think of self-surveillance or really Nietzschean. Uh, we think of self-surveillance, we think of, you know, the panopticon, cats are going insane, or, or anything like that. So as a result, 
caught in a vast, what he says, caught in a vast Stockholm syndrome, the alienated, the oppressed, and the colonized are siding with the system that holds them hostage. They are now annexed in the literal sense, prisoners of the nexus of the network, connected for better or worse. That is because I think in a sense, the system monopolizes the possibility even to oppose the system. So the system sets the limits on what constitutes uh, proper retaliation. So those people that are, you know, have been colonized or have been, well, let's just say colonized because that's a good example. The system says in order for you to demonstrate to us a valid argument for yourselves or for your people, you have to adopt, you know, this, uh, this lexicon, you have to adopt this method, like you have to have this degree of legitimacy. So even embedded within the possibility of resistance is a submission to the logic of that system. This is because the colonizing forces so, you know, so easily traced back to Europe uh, were very devoid of a kind of cultural, of cultural values. That is why Baudrillard says at another point it was necessary for them to, or they felt it was necessary to eradicate uh, indigenous people because they had some kind of like attachment to God and the land that uh, put the Europeans who proclaimed to have that higher connection to, uh, you know, the earth through science or God through religion, um, they claim to have. So hegemony then relies on a symbolic liquidation of every possible value. Now there is a triple kind of configuration that he lays out that have that has uh, propelled us into this system. So he says, number one, this is when capital surpasses itself. This is on page 41 in my version. When capital surpasses itself and turns against itself in the sacrifice of value, the economic illusion, power turns against itself in the sacrifice of representation, the democratic illusion, the entire system turns against itself in the sacrifice of reality, the metaphysical illusion. So in each, they respectively, or not in each, so they respectively move beyond value, representation, and reality in a hyperspace that is no longer economic, political, or real, but rather the hegemonic sphere. When, as we, because we are confronted with this uh, hegemonic system, Baudrillard says that we almost wish we had domination back again. Because in domination, you know, there's a clear locus of authority or power uh, that dictated, guided what, um, or how people could act. So we compensate for this in a number of ways. So take the uh, American political system. Now, first, I want to preface this by saying that obviously political, uh, political people in political authority have effects, especially on marginalized communities. But the current obsession by many, you know, privileged people that in many ways won't experience the kind of oppression they claim to be experiencing, uh, especially conspiracy theorists, who believe that power is located in various locations, although it is they are hidden, right? So we think of the, I don't know, Alex Jones or whatever, where they generate a vessel in the form of a political authority or you know, CEOs of various companies and say that is where the oppression is deriving from. And they rally up their supporters to charge against that point. Now, that is for Baudrillard, I, I would believe, 
that is a way by which people convince themselves that we haven't entered this kind of hegemonic phase, that we haven't entered in the Foucauldian term, the carceral uh, state where power is exerted through many different um, avenues and that guide and, and shape people. And that ultimately it's really the power in your own brain that, or your own mind that controls you. So we create these kind of compensatory points of power because we dream of power. We wish it existed because it would be that much easier to overcome. But it is much sneakier than that. So at this stage, Baudrillard asks, what is it we should be doing? Should we drive the system to its logical conclusion, if it has a logical conclusion, or just to its end? Or do we try to slow things down? Both of these approaches are flawed because they presuppose the possibility of um, seeing a productive use of the system we live in, whereas that is not the case. There is no real productive use of the system we are in. So if we remove, he says, the moral utopia of power, power as it should be in the eyes of those who reject it, if we hypothesize that power only lives through parody or simulations of representation and is defined by the society that manipulates it, if we accept the hypothesis that power is an ectoplasmic yet indispensable function, then people like Bush or Schwarzenegger fill their roles perfectly. Not that a country or people has the leaders it deserves, but that the leaders are the emanation of global power. The political structure of the United States is in direct correlation to its global domination. So there is therefore no reason to think of an alternative. Power itself must be abolished, and not solely in the refusal to be dominated, which is at the heart of all traditional struggles, but also just as violently in the refusal to dominate. If the refusal to dominate had the same violence and the same energy as the refusal to be dominated, the dream of revolution would have disappeared long ago. So a romantic vision, no doubt, but it is it raises a good point. So we th might think of the earlier Baudrillard here, the early Baudrillard, and I hesitate to say any such things as there being a late and early Baudrillard, but anyways, uh, early Baudrillard with the mirror of production, one of the concerns he was leveling was the extent to which Marxist doctrine would, in fact, replicate many of the same oppressive tendencies of capitalism. So I think it's important that while he's giving us a really romantic idea here, like we have to refuse not to dominate, well, Baudrillard, what does that look like? Is it Does that mean we can't organize people? Does that mean that we can't uh, provide, you know, aid to different countries, you know, whatever? Uh, it is important, nevertheless, to always keep it in the back of our in our minds the possibility that we are repeating, recycling the same modes of authority we sought to oppose. So ironically, we have arrived at the point where domination has ceased to exist. We have eradicated those points of authority. Or, you know, if they've retained their kind of symbolic position, like the queen or whatever, uh, they have been evacuated of this power they once had. So in a sense, we have arrived at the point we wanted to, but where we took the wrong step was by replacing it with hegemony. So we must then, aside from uh, possibly repeating the same kind of power, we have to oppose reality. We have to oppose the system we are in. That is because this idea of reality, as it is so closely tied with things like, you know, scientific capital T truth or anything resembling that, uh, is, is simply a farce. It's a big joke for Baudrillard, like, okay, good luck trying to 
universalize anything beyond, you know, the parameters of your home. So he says, what does the universal mean in the eye of the immigrants? Populations left follow entire zones of fracture and exclusion in our own overdeveloped societies, which, you know, he shouldn't even have to say, like, it's so blatantly obvious that this thing called, you know, universal uh, truth is, or as far as any kind of societal organization or, or means of conduct or ways of conduct or, or anything like that doesn't extend much further than one's own kind of epistemic framework, uh, but it's still an important point nevertheless. So it's about opposing any sort of connection between reality and, you know, this truth system. All right, so moving into the next one, next chapter, we called the White Terror of the World Order. So in this system, in this move from domination to hegemony, Baudrillard says that negativity reemerges as irony, mocking, and auto-liquidation internal to power. So counter-power, counter-hegemony, takes the form of a kind of mockery. This is, this is a point that comes out in uh, the work of Homi Baba as well. Uh, so Homi Baba, in the location of culture, argues that the colonized, in many instances, turn the gaze back upon the colonizer by making a a mockery by uh, replicating, reiterating the identity markers imposed upon them, uh, essentially disturbing the facile association of those markers with the developed, with the privileged, with the superior uh, colonizer people, which in a sense reverses that, that gaze. Now, reversibility is a key idea in Baudrillard's thought, uh, as he says here, as power absorbs the negative, it is d- devoured by what it absorbs. There is justice in reversibility. So v- reversibility is something and that never goes away. Reversibility is also in many ways seduction. So in his really early stuff, uh, the primary term he uses is reversibility because he, he was always thinking of the way that power can never be truly power. There's, it would, will always, in a dialectical way, be opposed by something else that will usurp its authority. Now that turns into seduction, uh, which is pretty much the same thing. Seduction, wresting something outside, away from its position, to t- seducing something away, diverting it from its path. So, hmm, it is then difficult to understand what the concern is, or what the problem is that Baudrillard is laying out. So when he's talking about the agony of power, we might turn around and say, why do you care if reversibility is always there and if all these systems are always going to you know, uh, be reversed, always be opposed by something else? So I think that how we reconcile what Baudrillard's doing here is by considering the possibility that this law of reversibility will go away. Is it possible for reversibility and seduction? And for more on that, like read seduction first. Uh, but I also did a video on that. Um, what will happen when these things go away? So anyways, this negative form, beyond just being a kind of mockery that exists on the inside of a system, is also taken up, assumed by terrorist uh, impulses. So when domination becomes hegemony, negativity becomes terrorism. So I think we can understand this in two ways. Where are those groups that actively take on, you know, the 
the veil of um, terrorism oppose the system, but also anything that resembles negativity is labeled as terrorist, terroristic. So it happens in two different ways there. This is because the system, in its growing perfect, in its not having any sort of negativity in it, uh, grows rather weak. So we can think of a body in the same way, where people, if ever, if humans were um, inoculated from every disease, wait, how do I want? I want to frame this. If we had a human body that, sorry, if we have a human body that is not introduced to any kind of disease in the form of vaccines at a young age, that body is going to be susceptible to, you know, even stronger, more powerful diseases later on. So we could think of this another way. If we get rid of all diseases on earth, the human body is not ready to defend itself from, in an immunitary way, from viruses. So if, you know, God forbid some kind of virus were to come from a meteor, something like that, uh, the human body wouldn't have the defenses necessary to take it on, even if it was a simple virus like a flu or something like that. So this is also what occurs with, or what this culminates into is the possibility for the system to at, uh, arrive at its kind of endpoint, its self-destruction. Uh, because the system cannot prevent its destiny from being accomplished, integrally realized, and therefore driven into automatic self-destruction by the ostensible mechanisms of its reproduction. So at the height of its hegemony, power cannibalizes itself, and the work of the negative is replaced by an immense work of mourning. Kind of depressing, but I love that shit. So this mourning occurs, if it were to be realized on a global level, would be the end of all kind of, uh, you know, cultural identities that do not subscribe to the American way, uh, which is, as he says, is on the side of unveiling, desublimation, reductive analysis, the truth of the repressed, exhibition of owl nudity. Nothing is true unless it is desecrated, objectified, stripped of its aura, or dragged on stage. So that is, you know, the American way. Make everything apparent, make it real, very pornographic. So global power then is the power of the simulacrum. So the simulacrum being that thing that unveils, right? But it's an unveiling that hides the fact that there is, you know, nothing underneath, right? One other example of that America disseminates to the world is the idea of history, where Baudrillard says on 72, history itself is a product for Western export. We dump on others a desire for history through national conflicts, international institutions, access to the global market, while for us in reality history is over in the sense that it unfolds on its own, on automatic pilot, and more often than not in a loop. So history is one of those things, thinking about the past as, you know, linear progression um, and being, you know, objective and real, being that thing that, or one other um institution that communicates the logic of, you know, the Amer American simulation or perfectibility or truth to, uh, to the other big other. So this ability of the West to disseminate their logic of history is just one example or, or the simula simulacra more broadly, simulacra, um, that attests to the fact that there are still, according to Baudrillard, zones of reality. So that is, 
uh, interstices, alveoli, shreds of reality that survive in the heart of globalization and the hyper-reality of networks, a bit like the shreds of territory that float on the surface of the map in Borges' fable. So there are, uh, there are always going to be zones that oppose this. So the system in, historically has just eradicated those zones. Uh, but there are zones that still, you know, retain to this day, you know, a kind of cultural identity that opposes the logic of um, simulation as Baudrillard identifies it or illustrates it. So to oppose the system then from, if it were to come from these zones, is not, could not be conducted by adopting the same kind of mechanisms of the system, but rather opposition to global hegemony cannot be the same as opposition to traditional oppression, right? So it can only be something unpredictable, irreducible to the preventive terror of programming, forced circulation, irreducible to the white terror of the white world, of the, (laughs) the white terror of the world order, sorry. So this is a bit different than some of this uh, oppositionary tactics he laid out in his earlier work, where he's saying things like graffiti is a very resistive act because it opposes the logic of the code and signs and all these types of things uh, that instills a new uh, narrative that doesn't subscribe to a, a, a kind of teleological narrative in its own right. It's kind of spontaneous and um, irreducible to a, to a logic. All right, so then we'll go into the third chapter where good grows. So this starts out with a little uh, quip against Marx, where quoting Marx, I think this is a quote from Marx, Baudrillard is notorious for making up quotes and un- using unsubstantiated claims. Uh, but he has a quote from Marx ostensibly where, until now, philosophers were content with interpreting the world. Now it has to be changed, which I think is a true quote. So against Marx, today, transforming the world is not enough. It will happen no matter what. What we urgently need today is to interpret this transformation so that the world does not do it without us and ends up being a world without us. So this really captures the way that I envision a Baudrillardian theory of resistance or kind of political understanding where it is not our duty to propel a system to go to its end or see what kind of new transhumanistic possibilities come out of it. but rather, what we have to speed up is our own, you know, way to understand the world that has entered, you know, hyperspeed. So this system, lest we actually do something about it, uh, it, it is the end of history, although not in the sense of a dialectical surpassing, rather as the beginning of a world without humans. Now, this is completely ironic, because at one time, you know, at the same time today, we have, you know, all those fucking YouTube uh, gurus saying that, you know, we need to reclaim uh, our kind of human exceptionalism and uh, re-invoke kind of new renaissance or human, you know, emphasizing human values and virtue and all that, uh, kind of, you know, theorizing that if we aren't doing it immediately, which science tells us in many ways we are, that it's on the horizon, right? And we have to just get over there, which is all hogwash. So in Baudrillard, at least this is how I have argued it in the past, um, the human in its past was always negotiated. The human was not a steady concept, but that is precisely what made it human. So in today's today, or when, you know, we can even go to Foucault for this one, when the human became a human, it was 
galvanized in, uh, in its identity, kind of concretized. That's the moment, counterintuitively, that it ceased being a human because it was no longer up to uh, chance or negotiation or anything like that. So this has been developing for a long time, this, this kind of destabilization uh, of the already destabilized human in favor of a stabilized human. Um, this has been going on for a long time, but in many ways, and this is how I think most people would read Baudrillard, uh, is about bringing it to the present in terms of automation, cybernetics, uh, you know, our proximity to all technology, uh, which, which is important to consider because that is the kind of apiothis. Ap oh my God. Apiothis. Ah, apotheosis of that system, of the system of perfectibility. Whereas it's important to consider kind of even on the back burner that these um, things have been going on for a while. It's kind of all wrapped up with the logic of modernity. So once again, we get into this uh, talk about terrorism as, as opposing this system, this kind of humanistic uh, system where security, says on 97, is quietly taking hold as a white terror, draining the system of its Western values, freedom, democracy, human rights. So terrorism being that thing that opposes the system ostensibly, uh, but it's a kind of opposition from the inside. So terrorism does not exist outside of the system. Terrorism works very much within it. But it's the system cannibalizing itself, kind of turning back on itself, where we think of that one passage uh, about the World Trade Centers, where they were not, you know, exploded from the outside, but they committed suicide, uh, which... <laughs> get my channel banned for that um, they, they committed suicide now this is an idea that has a certainly has a pretty lengthy past someone kind of and I, I just bring this up because I'm reading them now but a uh, Harold Innes the Canadian thinker the Ontarioian thinker um, the kind of proto McLuhan person uh, said that very much the same thing that any system that it, it tries to attain its own perfectibility by uh, by destroying the possibility for there to be a kind of marginality or otherness pushes itself to its own self-destruction. So it might be understood, and I think that Baudrillard kind of would side with this, that terrorism serves the uh, point of as a, as a kind of pressure valve, right? So the terroristic act reinstills the idea that there are still oppositionary points. So we lose sight of the fact that in many ways the terroristic impulse works within the logic of the hegemonic system and doesn't actually oppose it per se uh, but Baudrillard does kind of flip-flop on that where one moment he's like thank god we have terrorism it's kind of our last bastion hope uh, but at the same time it's still not all that radical so one other way we can understand is understand this is that terrorism falls prey to the illusion that there is still like a single locus of power right they still believe that by overcoming, you know, this one zone, notably, it's a pretty big zone, but the West, quotation marks, uh, then, you know, all problems will come to an end, right? As though the logic of the system hasn't already instilled itself in every other domain of life through, you know, the binary codes that exist under computer, it, it, within computers. It's just one example. So those true points of resistance, Baudrillard tells us, are those uh, that are strangers to will, exiled from dialogue and representation, exiled from knowledge and history. 
those are the points that will oppose this system. And the reason he says that is because those things, that is, uh, those within dialogue, those within representation, those within knowledge and history, cannot oppose the system because they will only re-promote it by having internalized those kind of oppressive institutions. Or what he calls the less dead than us. Now, in a rather uh, appropriate passage, especially for today, when Baudrillard considers what walls do, uh, he says that we can be sure that any wall, even a transparent one, is the sign of a dictatorship or totalitarian system. We must therefore recognize that the West has become a totalitarian space, the space for self-defensive hegemony defending itself against its own weakness. A wall is always suicidal. As soon as communism raised the Berlin Wall, it was virtually lost. It could only crumble in the end like the wall that it erected against itself. And this just feeds into that logic of kind of scapegoating where, you know, all the internal mechanisms of power that exert themselves over the supposedly oppressed white people in the United States uh, can will somehow be resolved if, you know, we can or they can block off these immigrants from coming in, right? So it's not a very radical idea that he's putting forward here. You know, it's that logic of the scapegoat. Uh, but, you know, still, I like it. I'm a sucker. All right, then finally, we move into the last section here, the roots of evil. So this is a interview um, that I'll just kind of pick out certain key questions and answers to. So the first question deals with, the, with evil. So what does evil mean for Baudrillard? Where he says... On 109, the notion of evil is always very ambiguous. I would distinguish between at least two versions of evil. So there is relative evil, which is evil as it is generally understood. This evil only exists in balance with good, in equilibrium and permanent opposition with good. But now there is also an absolute evil, a depressive or catastrophic version of this relative evil. There is no longer any sharing or antagonism here between good and evil, and I'll interject, going back to that idea of perfectibility or integral reality. So this absolute evil comes from an excess of good, an unchecked proliferation of good, of technological development, of infinite progress, of totalitarian morality. So then the interviewer asks Baudrillard about uh, cloning and what cloning, how cloning figures into his work. So cloning is mentioned by him. You can find more about that in, I think, the Intelligence of Evil or the Lucidity Pact, which we'll get to at some point here, I'm sure, uh, or Screened Out, which is a compilation of essays. So Baudrillard says that cloning serves almost strategic purpose. So what they do not want to see, that is people, uh, however, is that the desire for cloning is just another way of disappearing, and a shameful one. It is a technological disappearance into artificial survival, corresponding to the elimination of the human as human. And this process of disappearance has already begun. So this anxiety, I think, he, that he's looking at is uh, how, you know, people are confronted with their mar- mortality and, you know, want to see that go on, see themselves go on. To which Baudrillard says, you would never be a human in that situation, and therefore would not have existed, and therefore would not have the ability to want to go on, kind of. I think my logic is sound. Probably not, but I, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, so this... Uh, there's also another point here that's important when he's talking about disappearance. So in another text, and I can't remember where, he has like 40 books. Uh, he's, he says that the key 
I think it's an impossible exchange that one of those uh, essays. He says that what is important is for humans to learn how to disappear. So disappearance is key for him because disappearance points to the possibility that you have exited the system of simulation or representation or kind of the orgy, as he says it, uh, and have gone into your own way. And this isn't like the, you know, the YouTube star, uh, you know, tracing their going into the wilderness, you know, to be alone. This is people who are with are beyond our um, kind of cultural know-how and that just don't subscribe to the system and we'll never know about it because they if as soon as they enter back into the system like those youtube people like a vice article about a man who's lived in the woods for, for 40 years not to say you can only do this by living in the woods but you know that's just an example um what that does is just erase that time of having been away turning it to a singular event of being the person that is the person in the woods, right? You have been, you've entered the kind of public sphere in that way and made apparent, made real uh, for everyone to see and therefore consume. And then in opposition to this system, Baudrillard tells us on the last page, let us allow that system to proceed normally or abnormally until it runs its course. Let us leave to the machine what belongs to the machine without trying to humanize it or make it an anthropoid object. For me, I will always have an empty, perfectly non-functional, and therefore free space where I can express my thoughts. So that's, I think that's his own kind of crafting of that that space. Um, and there's also, they have a little conversation about artificial intelligence where our present fears are kind of black mirror society. Our present fears about technology are a strategy to convince us that they, we have once at least at one time been human or that we are human and we are at risk of losing that humanity due to these you know technologies these kind of anxieties brought up through black mirror it's just one example of a kind of a popular media thing where all that does is strategically convince us that we are or have been uh, human whereas you know that's not that's not the case so that wraps that one up um i like you know i have to obviously skip a lot but this is a pretty repetitive little text that is a nice introduction to baudrillard's work i think uh knowing baudrillard's disdain for perfectibility and uh simulation and knowing the distinction between like oppressive simulation and benevolent simulation i think are all important ideas especially if you're going to go back and read some of his earlier stuff, like for a critique of the political economy of the sign, which is a very difficult text. Uh, the mirror of production is, is a lot more accessible, but then other texts like symbolic exchange and death, which is very enigmatic, strange, complicated, and seduction. It'll really help to know these things before jumping into those ones. So not to say you should start with the later stuff or anything, but, you know, do, do whatever you want. But on that note, if you have any problems with what I said, do what you want. Uh, other than that, 